Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. This message is from Dustin Pennington on the dreams that God has for us and our definitions of those dreams. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. All right, I want to take, how long do I have? What's the, what's like the cutoff point? Because do we have time to get through the entire book of Leviticus in the next 45 minutes? We're going to do a verse-by-verse exegetical study of the book of Leviticus in the, in the ancient Semitic language of Hebrew, and we're going to find out who actually wrote the book of Leviticus. Are you ready for that study? No, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I am a little tired, you can, you can tell, but I'm really excited about this. I want to talk a little bit on a subject called the death of a dream. Doesn't that get you excited? Wow. That's why I'm here, to talk about how my dreams die. No, the death, the, this is where dreams die. Come to Gatekeepers, where dreams die. That's our, that's our punchline. The death of a, of a dream. Do you guys know um, what you've been like studying the last few weeks? What person in the Bible? Anybody remember? Joseph, right? You've been talking about Joseph going through the book of Genesis, correct? And Casey told me where you guys left off Last time, where did you guys leave off in the life of Joseph? He's in prison, right? But what, but like what sort of just, yep. So what really just nasty bad thing just happened? For Jezebel in the form of Potiphar's wife, right? You know, he, you know, he's doing the right thing, doing the right thing. She keeps coming on to him, coming on to him, coming on to him. And then, and then there was that one moment when he was in the house by herself with her. She flung himself on him. He like ran out the door, she gets the, you know, she's holding on to the cloak, and then she completely twists the whole story, and then all this accusation begins to come about who he is as a Hebrew. His, she begins to attack his identity as a person. So really, I mean, and I think if you were here last time, did, that's what Casey talked about, right? I mean, how, how the first thing the enemy wants to do is attack our, our, our identity. He wants to go after, he, he, he wants to go after who we are. So a great message. And then, so we find ourselves in this chapter, Genesis 39, verse 19. So after all this happened and, and after this took place, Joseph was what? Thrown into jail as a result of, this, of these false accusations. It says, so it was, this is verse 19. So it was when his master heard the words which his wife spoke to him, saying, your servant did to me after this manner, that his anger was aroused. Then Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. I like the comma and that last little phrase, and we're just going to left, and he was there in prison. Now, Joseph begins his story with us, right, as what kind of person? What's he doing? What's Joseph doing a lot of when he's a young man? Doing a lot of? Uh, Genesis 39, 19. So what's Joseph do a lot of? Dreaming. So I want to talk to you about the death of a dream. And I want to tell you what kills a dream. You ready for this? So I'm going to give you the punchline of this. All right, first, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit, all right? The death of a dream, the death of your dream is your definition of the dream. All right, let that just set and soak. The death of the dream of God for your life and for my life is the definition you write about the dream he gave you. That is what will kill our stunt or prolong the dream that God has for you. All right, get it? The dream God has for you will, be, will die, be, be diminished, or be destroyed by the definition you write of that dream. All right? That's what we're going to see. So now we're going to go all the way back for a second, and we're going to talk about why this is important. What I am going to tell you guys right now, I guess I'm the, I'm the old man in the room, right? But I'm proud to say, I'm still in my 40s. I know it's hard to believe like I look like I'm in my 30s, but I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm still in my 40s for three more weeks, four more weeks, right? 
but I'm holding on some of my 40s. But what I'm going to share with you tonight, right? I wish somebody had told me when I was 22. I wished somebody had told me the information I'm about to tell you when I was 22 and I, and, and I received the dream of God for my life. And because I didn't know what I'm about to tell you, it precipitated a series of actions on my part that brought about a lot of pain and a lot of difficulty. All right. Got that? So this is really super important to me. And I hope at some level, and I recognize that if, if, if you can only get like 2% of this, I'd be like really happy. If you could get 0.5% of this, I would consider tonight to be an absolute phenomenal success. Because just a little bit of this, I believe, can help all of us that are pursuing God and endeavoring to catch the dream of God for our life and begin to steward it well in this, in this early time, right? When you're experiencing God, everything's new and fresh and you're, and you're young and the um, energy of youth, right? If you can steward the dream of God right now well in your, in your life, you can avoid a lot of the difficulties as you pursue that dream. So this message primarily is specifically for the person that is really serious about pursuing God. This message is really for the person who, who really wants to do the deal with Jesus. In other words, who this message is for, you're the person, right, that's standing in front of Jesus when Jesus says to the whole crowd, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me, and it's going to cost you everything. And the, and the crowd all goes away, and just a handful of people were left, the disciples, and Jesus turns to them and says to Peter, Peter, why didn't you go, go away with the rest of them? And, what, and Peter turned to Jesus and said, where else am I going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. In other words, you're at that place in your walk with Jesus where you're still standing and looking at him. When everybody else walked away because the road got a little bit too hard or the honesty of what Jesus requires was just too much for them, but you're still standing there. You get it? That's who this message is for. So this is not evangelism trying to get you saved. It's for that person, right? Or if you are aspiring to be that person, that's who this is for. Because it's that person that's standing before Jesus and you're able to look at Jesus and say, you know what? There really is nowhere else to go because I know where all those roads lead. Either I've been there myself or I know other people that have gone down those roads and I don't want to go that way. So I look to you, Jesus. You alone have the words of truth and eternal life. And if you're there, then you're ready for this because that is the person, that's the person that God will begin to drop his dream for you in your heart and what he wants to do with you. And in that moment, he's going to give you this beautiful thing, this sense of the dream of God in your own heart, and you're going to get it, and it's going to be super precious to you. How many of you know a little bit of what I'm kind of talking about? Just you sense call and dream and destiny. It's that, it's, that, it's that little thing inside of you as you experience God where you begin to recognize, I am more than what I am right now. There's something else. There's something else. It's that sense of destiny, desire, and passion that's hard to articulate, but you know it's real and it's vibrant. It's the fire inside of you that's not really quantifiable. You can't really figure it out, but you know it's there, right? That's when you're beginning to taste the dream of God. Now, we look at the life of Joseph, and, and we know as a young person, Young person, probably maybe teenagers, late teens, somewhere in that area, maybe even like early 20s, we don't know exactly, but he's certainly, certainly mature. We would, we would consider him a man. You know, he had man responsibilities because Jewish culture has this thing called bar mitzvah, and they really viewed becoming a man really at the age of like you're 12 and 13. There was no concept of like adolescence and teenager. That didn't really, I mean, really, you went from child to manhood. So, so we know he was a man. Who's ever heard the word bar mitzvah before? Right? So bar mitzvah is something that's done still today within the Jewish culture, you know, to help mark the, like, like the, the rite of passage, you know, from, from boyhood to, to manhood. So bar mitzvah literally means in Hebrew, it means son of the commandment. It means now you've reached a certain age that you're now responsible to steward the commandments of God. That doesn't mean you can do everything, you know, a 25-year-old or a 35-year-old can do, but now you're responsible to steward the command of God in your life. 
What that, what that really means is that, that, that you're capable at that moment to make good decisions. That you can't just blame, well, I didn't make a good decision because I'm too young to make it. You see? In other words, now you're able to steward what God gives you and make good decisions. In other words, at a certain point when we become a man or a woman at 12 and 13, according to Jewish culture, now we're really actually accountable for, the, for those decisions. That it becomes impossible then to say, well, I'm not responsible for my decisions because I'm not 18 yet. And, you know, 18 is when I become an official adult. Or I'm not really responsible for my decisions because I'm not, I'm not 21 yet. Because, you know, that's like the legal age of drink and we kind of view some things around the age of 21 as being important. Or I'm not really responsible for my decisions yet because I'm not 25 yet because that's when I can like rent a car without somebody doing it for me. Right? So these are like all the little sort of standards by which we can um, measure our own adulthood and responsibility for decision making. Now, can I tell you, all those standards were created in like the 19th and 20th century in our Western culture. That was not the standards that was being set and laid down in expectations in Scripture. Now, why am I belaboring this point? Because it's so important because we have to be responsible for you know, our decision-making. And so in this culture, Joseph was, yes, a young man, but he was bar mitzvah. He was, he was a son of the commandment. He was responsible to steward that which God was given him, and he was also responsible to make good decisions, and he was capable of making good decisions. He wasn't incapable. He was actually capable of doing it. So when we think about the life of Joseph, when, when you know, God is giving him these dreams, what do we know about the family dynamics in the life of Joseph? All right, what do we know? I mean, he's, he's like, is he the firstborn? All right, is he the lastborn? Who really knows your Bible? Was he really the lastborn? Who came after him, actually? Benjamin, like little Benjamin popped out a little bit later. Yeah, he, was, he was later. But in this context, Joseph really was like the last born. And he wasn't only the last born. He was what? Daddy's what? Favorite. He was daddy's favorite. He was like the favorite child. And, and he had his own little special jacket to wear with cool colors on it. And he was super that. And, and, and as a result, his, his, his other brothers, they like saw this favoritism, didn't they? And how did they, how did they respond to that? Didn't like it so much. There was, a, there was a little dysfunction in the family. There was a little dysfunction going on. And they didn't like it. So Joseph then, this favorite child, probably, you know, he, daddy protected him all the time. And so you could see, like, you can see the problem. I'm not sure if you ever grew up in a family with multiple kids, but did, did you ever go through those moments when you're like growing up with your like siblings and you felt like, you know, your brother or sister was getting a little more favoritism than you were, a little more favored? And did anybody ever have those moments? Yeah, I know. It's like, how'd that make you feel when you saw your sort of siblings getting a little something that you didn't get? Like, like takes you off, right? And this is, this, this sense of, Injustice and all those things. So you can kind of, you can feel a little bit like putting yourself in the uh, shoes of the siblings. So Joseph, now Joseph is aware of this dysfunction, isn't he? He's aware of the fact that his brothers really don't like him so much. He's aware that his dad likes him a whole lot. And then he's like, he sort of feels this thing going on and he gets these dreams and they're like really super powerful dreams and we don't have to repeat them all. But basically the bottom line of the dreams was what? Yeah, you boys are all going to bow down to me. You're going to all bow down to me. And then he has another dream, and he, and he calls out the brothers, and then he calls out dad. Guess what, dad? You're going to bow down to me too, you see. So now look at what Joseph is doing. God gives him these very interesting dreams, and immediately Joseph takes it upon himself to begin to write the definition of what that dream looks like. He takes this initiative, and he immediately begins to move and begin to speak that. Now, we don't know if he wrote it down, but he did begin to speak it. And as he began to speak very specifically, that is writing a definition to what this dream was. Or as he began to interpret it, and he began to define it. Do you, do you kind of see that, right? He was defining this dream in such a way, born out of his what? 
What was motivating Joseph, you think, to like tell his brothers who we already know, you know, there's a little bit of distance and a little bit of like anger with and, and what was motivating him to tell them his definition of the dream? Pride, what else? Himself, what else? Maybe he was, uh, maybe he was like angry, you know, I'm going to, he had something to prove. And he began to do that. And then the resulting factor of that decision. Now, why we're, why we're talking about decisions now? Because decisions are really important. Decisions that we make create certain pathways. Think about it, right? In other words, once you make a decision, that creates momentum in a specific direction, doesn't it? If I make a choice, that one choice will help define what the next choice is. And the next choice, and the next choice, and the next choice. So Joseph is at a, at a critical moment in his life in this decision-making process and really needs a lot of wisdom from the Lord in this. Now, if you, if you know your Bibles a little bit, you can like, let's do, some, let's do some hypothetical examples of the moment Joseph is in right now and think about what if. What if? Now, let me pull out a particular character in the Bible. His name is Moses. Does anybody remember Moses? Right? Moses was a Hebrew, you know, and the Pharaoh of the time wanted to kill all the babies. And we know the story of Moses, right? Moses gets put in a basket and flowed down a river. And, and all of a sudden, the daughter of Pharaoh finds little Moses, brings him into the house, adopts him as his own, finds a Hebrew slave to, to do the breastfeeding thing and to be the kind of like the nanny. And who did that end up being? His, his like his biological mom, like a beautiful, like a beautiful thing, right? And he, and he grows up as a prince of Egypt. He, he grows up with all this, but he knows he's a Hebrew at, at, at heart. And then, and he begins to see his own, his own people being treated like what? Slaves. And, and, and is it wrong, you think, what was happening? was what the Pharaoh was doing to, to all the Hebrews and basically all of Moses' kinfolk, right? Was it, was it, was it wrong what, what they were doing? And Moses, right, he felt this, you know, the, the dream of God to, for, for God's people to be free. Isn't that the dream of God for his people to be free? Absolutely it is. And Moses felt that. I mean, he was angry about it. He was frustrated. And, and I mean, it was building up inside of him. And one day he like walks out and he, and he sees one of these like Pharaoh slave masters, like one of these Egyptians. And, and, and he, and he sees one of his Hebrew family members in a sense, right? We're from the same, the, the same people. And what was happening to that Hebrew? He was being what? He was getting punished and beaten up by one of the Egyptians. And what does Moses begin to do? What does he do? He gets mad, and, then, and what does he do? He murders. He murders the Egyptian. Now think for a second. He began, he was catching the dream of God for his life. He was catching the dream, right? The dream of God that, that God's people would be free. He was feeling that inside, and that was right. That was good. He was catching his destiny. But then what did he do? He began to define that dream, right? He began to define that dream and begin to take action on that dream and murder the Egyptian. And where did that land Moses? Not in a good spot. It landed him fleeing and in the backside of a wilderness somewhere, no longer a prince of Egypt, but what? A shepherd walking around taking care of sheep. So just like Joseph, Moses was in a moment as a young person, beginning to sense the dream of God. Again, in a bar mitzvah principle, capable and responsible to make wise choices and steward it well, but he kind of didn't, right? What if, what if Moses didn't murder the Egyptian on that day? What if he realized that's not the right thing to do? To take matters into my own hands. Because see, when we write definitions, we're taking matters into our own hands, 
right? And if he had like resisted doing that, realizing the son of the commandment, right? This, this idea, of course, we know, you know, thou shalt not kill, even though Moses would be the actual guy to write, write that later on the Ten Commandments, but, but he would know that intuitively because we know in 1 Corinthians 2, it tells us the law of God's already written on hearts anyway. So the law that was written on the tablets only confirmed that which was already on the heart and our conscience, and our conscience, the law was already there. So Moses would have known that, but because he didn't do that. Anybody want to take a guess? What might could have happened if Moses didn't murder the Egyptian? It could have been written an entirely differently story, right? A, a completely different story could have unfolded in the life of Moses because he began to define his dream. Now, here's the big mistake here that we find happening. We find, and I can cite some other examples. Let, let me just give you another example. This may be more, um, you may not you know, know this as well, but, but one of the, the, the first king of Israel, does anybody remember his name? Saul, right? Saul was the first king of Israel, I mean, God's man. And so Saul had some problems. Saul didn't listen to who? You remember the guy's name? Samuel, right? He didn't listen to Samuel. Samuel was advising him to do like certain things. Samuel, prophet, you're giving, you know, Saul instructions on what to do. But Saul did what? He didn't listen. If you remember the story, there was a moment in time when they were in battle and they knew in order to win this battle, we need to offer sacrifices to God. And what was he supposed to do? What's the, what's the first word you just said? Wait. Wait. Right? What if Saul had waited? What if he had waited? And then Samuel would have come, and he would have done the sacrifice like he was supposed to, because Saul wasn't supposed to. Samuel was supposed to, but Samuel, but, but Saul wouldn't wait. What if he would have waited? Now, what could have, you know what could have happened? There wouldn't have been a David. There would have been a Saul. He would have been the one that God would have said, I'm searching after a man with my own heart. It would have been Saul's story, but it ended up being David's story. Now, what I want you to think about is this. This thought about waiting is critical. Moses' story could have been written entirely different. Joseph's story could have been written entirely different if he had a what? Waited. Waited to do what specifically? What, what do you think Joseph should have waited to do? Yes. He shouldn't have opened his big mouth and said anything. Or if he did say something, say it from the right heart posture. Because what he was saying was not coming from a good place. This wasn't the conversation where, hey, dad, can, can, you know, we go out and have a little mutton, you know, and, and have, a, have a conversation. And, and dad, I had these dreams. Can I just share them with you one-on-one? Can you, can you help me process these? That's not what Joseph did, right? Joseph shared them in a, in a, in a, in a way to elicit something out of pride and arrogance and hurt to, to make himself the direct beneficiary of his dream and not God. You see what's happening? Because he didn't wait. Now, you might be thinking, this, is, this is really isn't, isn't complicated because it all really does center around this word wait. If Joseph had awaited, just waited. If Moses had have just waited, if, if Saul had just waited on Samuel to get there, Waited five more minutes. Because you remember the story, if you, if you know the story, I mean, Saul did the thing he wasn't supposed to do, and as he was doing the very thing he wasn't supposed to do, Samuel walked up. Because Samuel was supposed to do the thing, because he didn't wait. He didn't wait two more minutes. And this is all coming from this, how we are stewarding the, the, the dream of God for our lives. It's so tied to waiting. It's so tied to waiting. So there's this scripture in the book of Isaiah, and you probably know it. 
It says like this. They, and anybody that can re- repeat it, go and jump in. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on the wings of eagles, right? They shall, all right, let's stop there. Very good. <laughs> You're getting there. You're getting there. So waiting will always bring perspective. So waiting will cause you to be mounted up on the wings of eagles. And what do eagles have? Perspective. They can see what's under them. If we're on the ground, we don't have much perspective. I said right here, all I can see, right? But if I get up, then I can really see down. When I get up, I can see down. If I'm already down and I'm looking down, I'm not going to see very much. So the only way to get up is to wait and to wait on God. Because the more perspective I get, the more perspective I get, the better my choices are going to be. The more informed I'm going to be. The more God's going to show me the longer I wait and and give me what I need to move forward. Now, what some of us do, and what I did, and I listen, I got a PhD in this. I know what this is, right? I wait just long enough to get enough perspective where I can like, you know, oh, I see the path, and I just run right into it. But I'm only like seeing maybe the, you know, just the barely part of the path. I don't see the direction of it. And I get out on it, and I get lost, and I fall off in the, fall off in the, fall off in the ditch somewhere because I didn't wait long enough. See, Moses waited just long enough to move into the dream based on his own definition, and he found out once he got there, he made a really bad mistake that was costly. Because when we wait, we get perspective, we can see better, and we can make better decisions that, we're hold, that, we're, that, we're, that we are being held accountable to, be, to, to make those decisions because we are responsible to make them well. By the way, you see that. So the longer I wait, the better I see. The better I see, the better I move. Has anybody ever had the like terrible thing where you like wake up in the middle of the night and you gotta go to the bathroom or you're hungry and you don't, and you don't like take time to turn the light on. You don't take time to grab your phone and you like get out of bed, you go in the corner and you kick your little toe on the side of the bed or the side of the furniture. Has anybody ever had that moment? I mean, how it is? I mean, there are a few things in life that almost make me cuss and sometimes do. <laughs> is that. Am I the only person? Hallelujah. Sometimes it's not a hallelujah, right? But you're like walking around, and I mean, you like, because you're, you're in a hurry, because your like bladder's about to run over. So you're like, you're in a hurry, and you're like, bam, like that, and it's like excruciating. Now, how could that incident have been prevented? Turn the light on. Wait a little bit longer. <laughs> Don't go right to the bathroom, walk the opposite way, flip the light switch on, take a minute, grab the phone, and then what? Because what does light enable, enable you to do? See better. So more perspective means more light. More light means you see more. When you see more, you walk more clearly. And the longer you wait, you're not just waiting on the path. You're actually waiting to see what's on the path. Then I'm able to see, oh, on this path, there's a, like a, there's a, there's a bad like pothole. On this pad, there's like a, there's a tack, there's a nail sticking up. And then I begin with perspective and light that I'm able to get on the path and I'm able to navigate it successfully. So what happens is when we don't wait on God, we don't steward the dream of God because we can't have the, the information we need to navigate well. Are we getting this? I don't want to beat the dead horse, but waiting is critical. We here have built an an entire church community around 24-7 live worship and prayer. That's insane. Why do I want you to be something that crazy? Because it's hard. It's difficult. It's a burn. It's a pain. Believe me, I know. Man, we could do a lot more stuff if we didn't do that. No doubt. All the energy all the pain, all the money, all the time, all the effort. Ask Aisha, she works, she works in our night watch, right? I mean, 
I mean, I mean the pain, the difficulty. Why do we do that? Several reasons, big reason. We obviously want to worship God all the time, but it's an environment where we've conditioned ourselves to wait. We sit and we wait. We slow ourselves down. We wait, endeavoring to build a culture and a mindset in a people to not run out ahead, but to sit on your butt and wait and get perspective. And it's not easy. Who knows what the Autobahn is in Germany? Does anybody know what the Autobahn is in Germany? If you do, raise your hand. Who would love to go to the Autobahn in Germany? The Autobahn is what? Anybody want to tell me? It's a road. And what does this road not have? Right, man. So people go to the Autobahn in Germany, and they get their little cars, or they rid the cars, and you can just go wide open. No, like... Speeding tickets, I and mean, you can go wide open. So do you know what we do? You know what we do? It would, it would be like doing this to the Autobahn. That I show up one day in Germany, and I get my concrete truck, and I, and I go out on the, on the Autobahn, and I start building speed bumps. How popular would I be? Like one night, it's late at night, I get my concrete truck out, go to the Autobahn, poking right along, stop somewhere, build this massive. And who's ever seen those speed bumps that literally take out your transmission? <laughs> if you're like going more than five miles an hour, I mean, you got to like slow down to you're barely moving so it doesn't tear off your entire um, gas tank. Not the little speed bump you can zip over. I mean, those kind of speed bumps that brings your car to a screeching halt, right? So that's what waiting feels like. That's what it feels like to wait. Because everything in you says go. Everything in you says do. Everything in you catches the dream of God. You get the sense of destiny. Everything screams inside of you, tell the brothers the dream. Everything screams inside of you, kill the Egyptian. Everything in you screams, go ahead and offer the sacrifice. Even if it's what I'm not supposed to do, I should wait a little longer. You get it? But what we're, what we're called to do and what we're invited to do in the Autobahn of our lives is to build, to intentionally build speed bumps that's going to slow me down and sit me down that I can be caught up in order to see down. It comes through waiting. But what happened to me, right? What happened to me was, I am, I got to end while I got 10 minutes. All right. What happened to me was, is I was like literally, now again, who am I talking to? What kind of person? I'm talking to the person that's standing in front of Jesus when everybody else has walked away and you in your own life right now, right now you're doing it or you're hopefully aspiring to do it. It's to stand before the son of God and you're saying to Jesus right now, Jesus, I have nowhere else to go. All that road leads to death. You alone have the worst eternal life. That's who I'm speaking to, right? If, if, that is you in that moment. That's the moment I found myself. I was about 13 to 14 years old. I was, on my, uh, I was on my first mission trip to Brazil, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and I was saved and I knew God, but it was in that place, right? It was in that place where I began to feel the dream of God. I call it like, like the call of God, that, that sense of destiny that the Lord was calling me into something. Now, listen very carefully. I'm experiencing God in this amazing place on this amazing mission trip. And I began to sense the dream of God. And you know what I immediately began to do? And it's interesting, by the way, I said I was like 13. I'd already been past the age of bar mitzvah. So again, I was what? What was I responsible for? My actions and my decisions. I can't just say, well, I made a bad decision because I was just 12. No, that's not, that's not a biblical thought. I was still responsible for my decisions. So I experienced the dream of God. And I immediately began to write the definition and you know what my definition was? I'm going to be a missionary for the rest of my life in Latin America. Oh, my goodness. Do you see what I just did, right? I had this dream and sense of calling and destiny. I immediately began to interpret it for myself 
And I wrote the definition of what that meant. And I lived for the next, let me get it right, 2013, 23, 43. I lived the next 33 years trying to get there. 33 years. And I never got there. I was trying to live out of that. And God in his grace and his mercy, when we cling to the definition that we write, you know what God's going to do? He's going to pry your fingers off of your definition. I may say this way. He may have to break your fingers to get them off of the definition you wrote to get you back to the dream. And that's so painful. Joseph ended up in all these pits and prisons and problems because it was God's way of getting his grip off of the definition he wrote as a young man. Moses ended up in the backside of the desert for decades as God was taking him through whatever process was necessary to get his fingers off the definition he wrote to get him back to the dream. That's called the grace of God. That's called the love of God. But what, and that's what he did for me. Because every time I'm trying to get there, God is doing this. Now, here's the danger. Now, follow my reasoning here, okay? This is why it hurts so bad. Because when I start writing my definition, I start attaching my expectations to that definition. My hopes, my dreams, my aspirations, my desires. I mean, it gets all convoluted in there, right? This is what I know is going to happen. And what happens is that as I begin to journey and then God begins to lead me in a different direction, what am I experiencing? Disappointment, discouragement, despair, despondency, depression. I can't think of another D word. Doubt. Doubt. Oh, beautiful. Yes. Doubt is a huge one. I'm going to add that to my list. Doubt. That's fantastic. All because, yeah, all because, all because I did what? I wrote a definition from a dream. I attached all my expectations to it. So what I did in my own life, I put myself through so much pain and so much discouragement, so much frustration because I did that very thing. And can I tell you now, still my 40s, can I, can I tell you right now, I'm not a missionary in Latin America. I'm just not. <laughs> God finally got me into what I was supposed to be doing. Now, here's the clincher, and I want to, like, close with this thought. Has everybody tracked with me so far? Everybody got me. All right. So here's the point of all points. What will kill the dream of God in your life? Anybody remember what I said? The definition of the dream, right? Me trying to figure out what it is and really define it in some super specific way. It doesn't mean that the dream doesn't have specifics, but I mean, I really make it like super, super specific. I like to think about the, who likes like abstract art, right? So anybody ever seen like these abstract impressionistic sort of things and, and you might, you know, look at this piece of art in it and, and you can tell it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tree. You just know it's a tree, but you don't know what. You don't know what kind of tree. You just know it's a tree. But so what writing a definition looks like is God will like show you this thing and you stare at the tree long enough. I think I see a green leaf on it. I think I see it. So it's okay. So it's a leaf. So that means it's not an evergreen. It's a deciduous tree. Do you know the difference between an evergreen and a deciduous tree? Evergreens stay green all the time. Deciduous trees, the leaves turn brown and fall off. Two basic varieties of trees give you a little arbol, you know, a little arbalist talk here, right? So I look at, oh, it must be deciduous. It has leaves. It doesn't have needles. It has leaves. And I, stare, I keep staring at it and thinking, okay, okay. Wait, wait. It's shaped like that. It's, 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 it's a maple leaf. Yes. It's a maple leaf. 
deciduous tree, maple leaf, maple tree, maple tree, maple, maple syrup, maple syrup, maple tree, maple leaf, maple syrup. Wait, maple leaf, Canadian flag? Yeah, Canadian flag. God's called me to Canada. You see? That's what it feels like. God gives us this dream, and I stare at it, and I try to figure it out, and I try to process it, and I start writing it, and the next thing you know, I'm convinced I've got the word of the Lord. He's called me to Canada. They're all atheists and going to hell, and they need us up there. They're hiding in their basements from COVID, you know? I gotta get to Canada and bring the good news, and literally, we begin to like, like, like completely become that. That's what I'm saying? But if we're honest enough, if we're honest enough, and we reverse engineer that all the way back to the original painting we saw of the abstract art in the tree, there was, there was nothing about that that was asking you to define it. You were never supposed to. You see what happened? But yet, I, but yet you spent the next 25 years of your life trying to get to Canada. And God's doing something different because he's breaking your fingers because he said, I'm not trying to get you to Canada. That's not the point, right? Because the point was never about a place anyway. The point of the dream of God for your life is not about a place. It's not about a profession. It's about a person. A person. Here's why. The dream is tied to the dream giver. The definition is tied to you. The definition is tied to you, and the dream is tied to the dream giver. Because the dream of God for your life, guys, has very little to do about where you're going to be and what you're going to be doing when you get there. The dream of God for your life and for my life is to know him. That's why the dream is so tied to him. That's the dream of God. Yet we spend so much of our time trying to figure out where he wants me to go and what he wants me to do when I get there. And God's like saying, I'm not so concerned about the where, not so concerned about the what. I'm more concerned about the who, about who you are and who I am and my desire to know you. So the moment we begin to get the dream of God, because the dream ultimately for Joseph, the dream ultimately for Moses, the, the end game for God is never about you getting to the right place, doing the right thing. The dream of God for your life is to know him and be a part of what he is doing. And you're going to go places and you're going to do things with him because with him is the point. And that is the deal when it comes to dreams. So as God, so you see what I'm saying, right? I was, I, if, if, if I get a dream and, and God begins to stir my heart and he begins to draw me and, and, and he begins to show me things and, and I'm like primarily thinking where and what and I'm not thinking who, I've actually started from the wrong, you know, it's like, like God's trying to speak to me and I, and I, you know, went to, I um, went to the airport when he was actually coming in on a train. I'm actually at the complete wrong place. So I got to start from the right place. If I start from the right place, I'm going to actually get the thing I'm waiting for. And what we're waiting for is him. Now, here's what's so great about this, guys. It takes the pressure off. It takes so much pressure off of you trying to figure out, 
What am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? How am I going to earn this money? And you're beating your head out and you're begging God, show me what it is, God. I'll do whatever it is. Just show me what it is. And God's like saying, yeah, we're going to do all that, but I need you to know this first. I'm after your heart and I want you. And I, and, and I want to show you things as you wait on me and I will show you what to do. Because it's all about him. That's like the punchline of the whole thing, isn't it? And if you're really honest with yourself, how much of your prayer time, how much of your request of God are really more about what do you want me to do and where do you want me to go? I know, I know mine was a bunch of that. Where do you want me to go, God? And what are you going to do? I dare say 80 or 90% of our, t- our prayer times and our communications of God, you know, with God and our requests of God are like that. Lord, what school? Who should I marry? Who shouldn't I marry? I mean, we're just like begging God all these things. And you know what God's saying? Wait, sit down, be still. Let me talk to you. Let me share with you. I've invited you into what I'm doing and I got really great plans for you. It's just, it's just wait on me. And that's the invitation that really he has every single one of us on. And the tendency we have to begin to define our own dream ends up producing the death of that dream or the distortion of that dream or the diminishing of that dream in our effort to define it. Because when we live from that place, when, when, when it's all about him, first and foremost, then it really doesn't matter quite so much about where we end up going and what we end up doing. Now, those things are important, but it doesn't matter nearly as much because I have him. So I could be preaching to 10,000 people or God may say, no, I really want you to like work at McDonald's and flip burgers for a while. And, I, and I'm good. <laughs> Because I have him, and he's all I need. He's the end result of the dream. Jesus is the destination. So the question is, how soon do you want to arrive at the destination of your dream? How soon do you want to arrive at the fulfillment and the destination of the dream of God for your life? Well, the destination is knowing Jesus. If Jesus is the destination... And in knowing him, I've arrived at that place. Then I can fully trust wherever we go with him is going to be good and it's going to be great. It's going to be hard and difficult, all those things, but it's going to be true. You see? Come on, that's pretty good preaching, isn't it? Really? I'm telling you this because I would have benefited so much if somebody had to set me down when I was, you know, 14, 15, 16, or, or honestly, honestly, you know, anytime under 35 probably, if, if somebody had to set me down and told me what I just told you, if I could have only, maybe, maybe I had a really small sponge and, you know, and like maybe the sponge like went in this big old bucket of water, maybe I could have only soaked up about like 0.5% of that, it would have transformed my entire journey with him. I would have had a different story. And I may have arrived at where I was supposed to be way earlier than I even did, or who knows, because it wouldn't have mattered because it was all about really him anyway. So in summary, the death of a dream is the definition we write about the dream. And it's a direct result of not waiting long enough on God for him to mount you up on the wings of eagles to give you the right perspective on how to walk in order to make wise choices and to move forward in all that he has for you because you're doing it with him and he's the point.
And guess what? We're going to do a lot of stuff. People in the room right now, man, there's some of you that are doctors, some of you that are lawyers, some of you that are on your own business, some of you that will be in vocational ministry. And there's all kind of variety of things that the Lord is going to lead you into. And as you wait upon him and he begins to guide you down that path, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, Lamentation says. It shines brighter to the full day. His word is a lamp unto my feet. And it's a light into my path. So I want to encourage all of you, if you're that one that's standing before Jesus and you're saying you alone have the words of eternal life, can I encourage all of you to, 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 to build some speed bumps on, on the Autobahn of your life? Build some, build some speed bumps somewhere. <laughs> that's going to slow you down a little bit. When everybody around you, maybe your mom and dad, is telling you to pedal to the metal, do something, Right to do something that's completely counter to that and say, no, actually, now listen, don't wrongly hear me. I am not saying lazy. I am not saying the kind of waiting that means you in the recliner binge-watching Netflix with a big bag of you know, Doritos. That's not exactly the kind of waiting I'm referring to. I mean the kind of waiting that's like the, it's like, because that's kind of pleasurable waiting. I'm talking about the kind of waiting that's painful. I'm talking the kind of waiting that feels like, you know, you know, you're in McDonald's and there's like 10 people in front of you in the drive-thru and you're like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. I mean, think about it. Whoever, is that anybody in the room? Oh, yeah. Or you're at Walmart checking out and they got 30 registers and only two are open and, and half, of the self, <laughs> half of the self-checkouts are broken, right? And you're thinking, waiting. Because that's how waiting feels. Nothing's fun about waiting. But in the burn of waiting... In the burn of waiting will come the light of waiting. And in that burn will illuminate the path that God's called you to walk. And guess what's going to happen? In that place, because God is so for you, not against you. In that place, you're going to find yourself where you're supposed to be, when you're supposed to be there, doing what you're supposed to do with who you're supposed to be doing it with. That's the promise of God. Why? Because Proverbs 3 says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not to your own understanding, but in all of your ways acknowledge Him. And what did He promise to do? To direct your path. That's the kind of confidence we can have in God. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at GatekeepersATL. We'll see you in the next episode.